Welcome to Jigsaw 24 Education Podcast, where we dive deep into the world of classroom technology. This series of episodes aims to give our listeners an exclusive look at how cutting-edge innovations in the classroom are revolutionising the world that we live in today. Today, we're joined by Lindsay Stuttered, a trailblazer in early childhood education, a pioneer in the realm of augmented reality, and a visionary founder of Create for a Cause. Our conversation will take us through her formative years as a teacher, her early encounters with iPads, and the undulating journey of challenges and triumphs associated with spearheading a one-to-one programme. Not just an educator, Lindsay has passionately coached and mentored countless other teachers guiding them towards excellence. Her mark in infusing education with augmented reality is undeniable, and we'll gain an insight from her experience as a speaker at major global conferences, including this year's BET. In addition to this, we'll also explore her motivations for creating Creator Cause and bringing Apple teachers and Apple ADEs across the globe together as part of formative books to help support teaching and learning. So without further ado, Let's get started. So a huge welcome to the Jigsaw 24 podcast, Lindsay. Really exciting one, this one, because I know that both me and Nikki have, when we were putting this together, this was one of the ones that was at the top of the list. Really exciting, this one, because, I mean, for me personally, there's, it was four, but it's actually five now um, with the people that have met along my personal journey. You are one of those five who... I was really quite excited to meet and I know that bet was a bit of a time ago was that about six months ago uh back in March yeah so four March. or five months ago yeah 100 percent. so that was something I think you were speaking at that event and I was like I've have to get I have all the things in bet there's two or three things I want to see and this is definitely one of them and um it, so it happened I was have to I was engaged during that time and I was like oh missed a huge opportunity to meet her there um, so I'm really super stoked that you've accepted the invitation to come on and do a bit of a deep dive really into what you've been doing, your history with it and where you, where you going with it really. <laughs> what are you doing? What's going on in there? <laughs> um, so I can give you just sort of a bit of background on me and how I've ended up where I am now. Um, I got into teaching when I was 19. And I was teaching at just a local little nursery and going to school at night and getting my degree in the evening. And it was really a good model because whatever I was learning at night, I was then able to put into practice in the classroom and just sort of see the real time results. And that was extremely beneficial in honing my craft, because I think when when teachers start out to get their degrees, they don't necessarily get as much um, hands on practice as they should. And that was really beneficial for me and not just waiting until sort of a student teacher placement, but rather I'm in the classroom and I'm implementing the things that I'm learning. So I always set out to be an early childhood educator and I've been doing that for a good portion of my career. I'm starting my 19th year in education now for this next year. Um, But sort of halfway through my career, I got the opportunity to teach a gifted education course. And that was really eye opening to the opportunities that students who are identified as gifted were given, but actually could really have benefited everyone that was in the classroom and not just for this exclusive group that had passed the test and had been identified and were getting this extra time. And so when I got into more international education, 
and was given the opportunity to build a one-to-one iPad program from a school, for a school from the ground up. I went back to the idea of my gifted students and said, I think this needs to be more mainstream. How can iPad support that in the classroom? And so it really went from there of me doing my first year of teaching with an iPad in the classroom to then the next year supporting all the teachers bringing iPads into their classrooms. And it's just sort of snowballed from there. And I've been in that type of support role ever since. But my model has always been to keep my foot in the classroom and do some teaching as well, which is what I currently do for ACS. I do digital skills lessons for all the early childhood students. um, And I run our digital design club for middle school, as well as I think this year, I'm also going to be teaching in middle school some digital skills. But by having my foot in the classroom, I'm able to see what the progression of the knowledge is for the children. I've been in ACS for four years. I've been teaching there for four years. And I can say with um, some certainty that the way we used iPads four years ago compared to now has definitely changed, not only for the students knowing more each year, which means we have to spend less time with the basics and we can do more of a deep dive, but also the model of teachers coming with their children to those lessons and getting to be a participant, an active participant alongside their children so that the pressure of having to know everything with the tech is alleviated. They can be the ones that is sitting in the background, following along. They can ask me questions as we're we're going through the lesson. And then the confidence builds of going, actually, it's not as scary as what I thought especially when I started bringing augmented reality into early childhood. I'm sure the teachers were cursing me inside going, what is she doing? Why is she doing this to our kids? But once they saw the links that I was making to the curriculum they were teaching, it then went, oh, okay. It's really not as extreme as, you know, this nightmare I was imagining in my head, but actually I can see the children are really engaged with it. And we've been doing AR in early childhood for, I think about three years. We're starting our fourth year with it now. And when we get to certain projects, you can tell the teachers that have done it previously get really excited that it's coming up and it becomes sort of a highlight of the year, especially when we do our rainforest unit for our pre-K. We get to see the kids step into that environment, into that ecosystem, which wouldn't be possible without that type of technology. And the teachers now really see what the benefits are. Um, I'm putting together research on this. I'm documenting, you know, how I see the benefits of AR in education. And I love the fact that we can look at our students from a year ago and ask them about their AR experiences and the knowledge they learned. And they can still recall a lot of the important information that was shared during the AR experience. But things that we know were um, exclusive to working with a particular app or program children a year on, early childhood kids can still recall a lot of the information. So that's sort of a a whistle-stop tour of where I am right now. I find it really interesting those those early years as a teacher because we was on a podcast the other day and we the message really for me was like you can almost like cherry pick different CPD off some of the ADEs or Apple teachers that you that you want to sort of steal and borrow but sometimes especially in the early years that maybe wasn't the case and it's almost that some people almost just like picked up an ipad and just did an exploration piece with okay i think this is going to change this classroom environment for the children i don't really know for certain it is going to do that but i'm I'm, I'm, deep down i feel like that's going to be the case and it's just interesting that those early years is, is the story is relatively quite similar would you say that's something that you found 
I would say so. I think you end up having early early years teachers that get put almost into sort of three categories. One is which the tech is forced upon them and they don't see what the benefits are. It deviates from what they've been taught about how children learn, how children interact with the world. Um, and so they'll resist it. Then you have the ones that they get the technology in and they're really just doing content consumption. They're putting children with headphones on, they're plugging them into the iPad, they're putting them on a, a game or an application, and it's all passive engagement. There's nothing that is requiring the child to actively be engaged other than pushing buttons on the screen. And so we're seeing that the, the way that they're teaching the use of technology is how we see older generations, which is it's just a tool for me to consume. You know, as adults, we might use technology to read the news, to watch videos, to chat with family, but very rarely are people in their spare time going to be actively creating. Then as you have going into your third group, as you've mentioned, Nathan, those that can see the benefits, but don't necessarily know how to get started and are, are keen to do it, but they just need a bit more of that, that guidance going forwards. This past year, um, I built a, a series of five workshops as part of the Apple Regional Training Center that we run at ACS that was specifically Ilya's focus. And I wanted to do that because I feel like when schools offer CPD, especially when you're coming back to school and you have your, in, your inset days and so on, it's never early childhood focused. It's always for the bigger portion of your population, which is your upper end of the school, your secondary education, or even your primary education. And early years always gets left behind. And I just wanted it to be something that, no, we're going to put them at the forefront of this. And I wanted to build courses that would um, sort of scaffold. They build one right after the other. So what you learned in the first one, we then build upon in the second one, build upon in the third one, and so on and so forth. That would touch upon allowing students to be those active engagers with their learning through creativity. A lot of CPD that I've attended in September is, is like you say, almost looking at the top and then looking down, whereas almost like a different approach, really. So from the very core, oh, and then how does it build year on year in terms of that build progression? This is what they start with and, and this is where, where they're going to go. What do you see as the changes that have happened to the, to the um, not just to the students, but to the teachers? Because I struggle really. Um <laughs> What I find in early years comes quite naturally, that creativity, the way I, that perspective that I see it in how to allow and uh, the freedoms to allow students to access the iPads in order to give them that power, that autonomy and that control and ownership. But I struggle sometimes communicating those, those differences of perspective with the teachers. How have you seen the teachers change over the last three years? So I think first and foremost, I think the pandemic really helped because it didn't force teachers to change the way that they were thinking about education, but it forced them to get to know the tools that they'd been putting off using for a very long time. And so those that either had the technology fear because they're an older generation and this is something that's been forced upon them, um, or whether they were using tech, but not necessarily really delving into the full extent of what could be possible if we just learned a little bit more. So I have to give credit to the pandemic of really pushing people outside of their comfort zones. What I think was key is when we came back, what did we do? And I have to say, I would, from teachers I've spoken to in different schools and different parts of the world, 
there was this sort of reticence of we're coming back, we're going to put all the technology away and we're going to focus on the learning again. And that was really a dagger to my heart of we didn't stop learning. We just changed the way we were doing it. And if you think that the technology was hindering it in some way, you've got the wrong mindset of being a 21st century teacher. So we really looked at it from what worked really well during the pandemic that we want to improve upon and we want to keep going. We had teachers report that students that would normally have not engaged and not been willing to raise their hand and share during the pandemic because they were given more time, we saw an increase in engagement in them. We saw more come out of them because they were given choice, because they were given that flexibility of time to work at their own pace and to put as much or as little effort into what they were doing as possible. Guess what? There's more inside that child than just what they're showing on the outside when they're in this classroom dominated by bigger voices. So we wanted to keep using technology to give access to children. We developed this, um, this framework that I call ALF. It's a great name, by the way. Um, access to learning framework. And the idea is your student is at the center and all the information that they're getting is coming to them through creative pathways. That could be visual, it could be text, it could be auditory, it could be AR, it could be nonverbal. However they're consuming information, those pathways through the technology should allow them access. Once the child has that information and they're processing and understanding, what are their output methods? What do they do once they have processed what you've given them? And do they have as many pathways as possible to choose from to share their understanding? And so looking at ALF has really helped teachers to break down teaching and learning to its, its core. And if we look at it and go, I can't justify hindering students having access to content or having pathways to share their understanding simply because I view the technology in this type of way. If I look at the example of secondary education teachers who insist upon students writing essays, I always ask them, are you assessing the formatting of the essay? And if you're not, stop making students do it because you are going to hinder some of your students being able to access and share their understanding back to you simply because you're forcing them to do it in the way that you want. I would much rather a student make a video, make a podcast, whatever the formatting is, because the process they're going to go through of organizing their thoughts, being able to get their understanding out, whatever the product they come up with is fine. If that works for them, I just want to know what's going on inside here. I want to know that they have a good understanding and I can't justify forcing every child to do an essay every single week as evidence because it's the method I prefer to grade. I, I can totally relate to some of those messages about when we came back after COVID. We had those heroes and we had those conversations with, oh, such and such has done such a great job this week. It's almost like pressing the reset button, just going back to type. And just listen to what you said there. It's almost that that traditional way of learning, use of iPads and technology and, and where it moves over the next five years. I mean, does it have the ability to to change that perspective in, in how we view work? Because like you've just said, that traditional essay, several layers to that, which can often be a barrier for, for many of the children as well. So literacy is a barrier. Spelling may be a barrier. So there's almost that anxiety. I don't want to spell things wrong. And 
so you're not actually testing them on, on the actual knowledge of what you've been teaching and I think it's just a really exciting route that I, I wish that all schools would just say this is what we're doing now let's drive towards this because essentially it's about what children know Absolutely. I can give you another example on the other end. So looking um, in the primary areas, I'll use my own child as an example. My daughter has really amazing ideas and really amazing stories that are very creative. But if I, if I were to sit her down and say, okay, now write all that out, she'd be lost. And it's because her working memory is trying to get as much information as possible. But the transcribing, especially when she was younger, being able to physically write, she'd get frustrated because it's it's happening so quickly and she can't output that method as quickly as, as, as her brain is going. So what we did was use the voice memos app on the iPad to just record. So we said, OK, we're going to set this up and I just want you to talk. I just want you to tell me your story as much detail as you want for as long as you want. And she would do that, might be three minutes, might be five minutes, doesn't matter. Once that's done, the story's there and she doesn't have to keep it in working memory anymore. It exists in the real world. So the focus can now be on transcribing. If we're working on handwriting, if we're working on organizing our thoughts and ideas, she can now sit with paper and pen and listen to herself and pause it when she needs to, to practice the transcribing. But the worry of it being there and not being able to get it out, that is now eliminated. And I think that those types of approaches, if they are encouraged more in the classroom, you're going to remove barriers for students. They're going to have those access pathways to be able to share. And we're going to encourage them to find tools and resources that allow them to be an active learner. One of the things that you've just really um, resonated with me and because one of the struggles that I find is that teachers often teach in the way that they learn um, and they don't know, they don't understand the, um, the way to, to communicate learning to students who learn completely different. And I think one of the things that we've all realised now is that everyone, everyone needs different access to education or different access to materials and resources in order to learn effectively and process learning or, and pro process material. And um, what you've just said about recording is so interesting. So I'm dyslexic, ADHD, struggled for a very long time to write um, and very unconfident in my writing, even as a, now as an adult. Um, but recording, I use a, a tool called Otter uh, AI on, on, and I use it every single day. Nathan and I talk about it all the time because it, it just is my brain. It records when I'm writing out a presentation, I'll record myself just talking about something. And, for, and it, then I can take that transcript and I can see where the pieces are missing. I can put that into ChatGPT and it processes that information for me and kind of like then picks out bits and pieces that I haven't realised. And I think for students, they need that ability to, um, they need a tool in order to capture what they're thinking and then find the holes in it. What's missing? How can I structure this in different ways? So I really love that whole using the memos thing. I think it's brilliant. Absolutely. Um, I'll give you a, another example, um, especially for students that struggle with being able to take, take multi-step directions. And if you're a teacher, if you're able to record instructions for a student that relate to a process that you're going to be using over and over again, if that student has those directions on their iPad as an audio file, that they can go back to. 
and listen discreetly as many times as they need to. That also reduces the anxiety and fear of being sort of singled out as, you know, I don't want to say the dumb one, but the one that, you know, is always needing that extra help, which puts a target on your back. Inevitably, as a student, you're different. There's something different about you. And I'm going to use that to my advantage to make you feel worse. If there's a way that a teacher can, you know, use the technology to discreetly support a student so they're still getting what they need, it's differentiated for them, but without making them feel like they're they're learning in a very different way, it's just using the tools. It's using the tools to provide that support. And if it makes a difference for that student, it's well worth the investment and the time to do it. Yeah, I always think that that's like those unique needs, those unique tools and scaffolds that we, digital scaffolds that we use, are empowering those students and what I love about those those tools that we use they're not just great for dyslexic students or students who struggle in different areas those are going to be great resources and tools for all students and I often find that the things that we use for dyslexic students or students with needs are actually something we should be using for all of the children in our classes absolutely if I can piggyback off of what you said before about you know the, the teachers how do we get teachers to sort of change their understanding i love that you both took a drink at the same time there that was wonderful well well done well in sync (laughs) um what's worked incredibly well for us has been the modeling where teachers have always been encouraged to go into the classrooms of their peers and see how their peers teach but it's very different when you come in and you're an active participant as a student and that's what worked really well in our early childhood is my lessons are not other teachers prep time the teachers come with their children and because they're coming every week there's sort of always this ongoing pd for them and that has helped to build their confidence tremendously but it's so different than you're being required to go and you know view someone else's lesson when you may not have much context of what you're going in to see it's just oh yeah my door's open pop in and have a look That might be great for some people, but for others, it's sort of, well, I'm giving up my time to come in and see this. And there might be a level of resentment or they may feel like I'm not going to get much out of this. When you come with your own students, you're investing your time and showing your students you're also willing to learn, which I think is incredibly valuable in breaking down this stigma that the teacher has to know everything. The teacher doesn't. And it also models that a teacher can continue to be a learner in the classroom as well. And that mindset of the teacher and is just really interesting because it feels when we have the conversations with schools that it's so vast. You go into one school and it's like, okay, we're getting children to be digital leaders and they're going to be doing a Apple teacher equivalent to make sure that their skill level is as high as it can be so they can support other children in the classroom and then you have a conversation with another school and explain what that other school is doing and, and sometimes the response is well I'm not too sure about that um they would know more than me then <laughs> I think the more teachers actually see this in action I think it just changes the whole mindset about what that environment looks like I always come back to this phrase that some teachers in the classroom have gone from that journey from a blackboard to a whiteboard to an interactive blackboard uh, whiteboard and then iPads. And I think the biggest change out of all those four is the iPad in in changing that dynamic in the classroom to I'm learning with you, not at you. God, I'm at the front, I'm directing traffic, whereas I'm back of the class, I'm with one of my students who I'm supporting, 
but I'm also directing the learning at the same time. Well, I think once once teachers see this, they, they understand, but I think that the, the concept of when you explain it is something that I think is hard for them to, to see because they've not necessarily seen it themselves. I think those that come with an open mindset and are willing to be a little bit vulnerable in front of their students, it's not necessarily a vulnerability to make you feel bad, but it's to make your students feel empowered. And if your students can be the ones to come in and, and you go, you know what, we're going to do podcasting today. I don't know too much about it, but Stephanie over here, she has one that she's been doing herself. So Stephanie's going to walk us through. I'm going to be taking some notes so that I can sort of transcribe that and give you that access to information later on. Stephanie, take it away. How much more empowering is that for that student? Um, but also you as a teacher to model, it's okay not to be the smartest person in the room. It's okay to not have to know everything. And there's always new ways of going to be able to, to learn. It builds that relationship with the teacher as well. You imagine that child coming home and saying, mom, dad, or whoever they may live with, I've taught the class today how to do a podcast. And they'd be like, you've what? You've taught the lesson? It's like, yeah, yeah. And that, that, that was such a positive, powerful message to give. And obviously, you know what schools are like, that one child goes home and says that, and it ripples across the school. And all of a sudden parents become really inquisitive about what you're doing in the classroom with them. And it's like, wow, this we've actually heard it now because you put it out on, on yep. Twitter or X or whatever, whatever I want to call it. It brings everything together for me. I mean, because I know you mentioned there about the, the pressures that teachers often face. And I, I guess it's difficult once you've been in habits to almost like let go and change those habits that you've had for probably the best part of five, 10 years. I, th I think as well, just two other two additional points. When we empower our students to be leaders like that and give them opportunities, you know, to, to be the one that is going to share, um, it's showing that their their learning matters, that what they're doing is contributing, and they're not just at school to be passively engaged and just filtering through the system, but actually what they've got to um, to share their knowledge and their understanding. It matters. It has a role to play. Uh, the second point I wanted to make is that in addressing teachers that are um, hesitant about changing, I had a teacher several years ago who's just getting to retirement age, sort of being a bit disgruntled about why was I teaching them how to do these types of things with technology. And I made the point of saying, I'm not doing this so that you will change your personal behaviors outside of school. I'm not teaching you how to use email or Google Drive to better yourself if that's not what you choose to do but I'm teaching you this so that you can support this generation of learners. Everything is constantly evolving and we can't just keep clinging to older methods because it works for us. We have to do what's going to be best for this next generation. These students are digital natives, the ones that are in schools now. That's all they've known. Those of us that grew up in the analog, we're the digital nomads. We're on this journey of trying to get to where the digital natives are but we remember a world pre-digital. So we have to find a, find a balance that not only works for what we need in our personal lives, but how we can support students who are these digital natives. And I made this good point about, you know, we walk around with phones now and we have calculators in there that can do complex calculations. But back in the day, you used to have to do um, sine and cosine with a slide rule. Do we walk around with a slide rule anymore? No, we don't because technology has evolved. And it's to make our lives a little bit easier so we don't have to know 
um, as much in our heads as we used to. We have tools that can support that so that our brains can be free to think about other things that maybe we haven't focused on as much as maybe we should have. Do you know, as we're talking here, you won't know this, but I've been sort of frantically using this as a CPD opportunity, scribbling little acronyms <laughs> down, just so I can have a little research into this myself a bit later. Do you know what, Lindsay? I think we could talk for a long time about this. Um, we're going to digress just ever so slightly and um, look at some of the work you've done with um, Creator Cause and really how that started and what the inspiration was at the very beginning and, and what it is now. Certainly. So I... I am the, the first starter, the founder of Create for a Cause. Um, it came about during our second lockdown here in the UK, when the winter was really bleak. We were back in lockdown again. We were all working from home and I was feeling incredibly isolated. Um, the, the way I was working was opening up my laptop and waiting for anyone to call me, Zoom me, email me, asking for support. And that can be really bleak day in and day out operating in that type of way. So I wanted um, a creative project that would allow me to connect with others. And I was missing the Apple community. There wasn't a whole lot going on. Um, I know they did the Festival of Learning in 2020, but in 2021, it was kind of like, okay, well, we're six, seven months on from that. I have all these amazing ideas and I have no output um, for, for channeling all of that. So I reached out onto Twitter to ask if there was anyone that wanted to partner on a book that I wanted to do for comic relief. And I, I thought that's going to lift people's spirits. We're going to get to be creative. We're going to let people come up with projects um, and lesson ideas, but it's on a topic that's meant to be about, you know, fun and engagement. And I was lucky to get a group of 10 people involved from different parts of the world, all contributing to create for comic relief. And then that just sort of snowballed. And we had a core group of educators that were willing and committed to being involved in every book, whether it was participating in activities, whether it was helping to promote, whether it was marketing. In some way, this core group was, was holding it all together. And then we opened it up to other contributors to join in. So we had people from Australia, South Africa. We had people from America, people from Europe, all just joining in. And it got to a point where we had a string of books all in the works in the backgrounds and we were just releasing them one right after the other on these different causes. So what started as something that was in a way a bit selfish of just going, I need some help with my mental health and you're going to help me to do this. So then really having a strong focus on raising awareness of key issues that I believe, and I'm sure some of the other educators who partnered on these books with me, believed were not being addressed in the right way in schools. So we know that every school in some way will talk about the ocean, but what are you getting students to understand about the ocean? Yes, we can just classify things and we can know what the layers of the ocean are, but what are the bigger picture items that are getting sort of glossed over because it might be controversial and it might be difficult to teach. We wanted to find a way to bring access to those types of topics through creativity. So we'd raise awareness of what's happening in these different areas, but that students could be involved in sharing their voice through whatever creative method they wanted to. And we did 11 books in our first group that were raising awareness of just different charities, different organizations that were helping to make a difference on big issues. 
And now we've jumped into addressing the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. We know schools are starting to incorporate them um, around the world, but maybe aren't necessarily thinking on a global scale and are more thinking of at their own individual levels, what we can do locally and I'm not necessarily aware of what's happening globally to tackle these. So the books that we've been creating now are taking those individual goals and saying, here's how you can get students to have their voice creatively um, in a way that's going to make it feel like they're having an impact. Definitely. It's, it's almost like more, more I'm, I'm sort of thinking, because one of my big things when I was at secondary school was to do these events like children need which were like a moral responsibility that we need to make sure that they know what it is and why we're doing it and i get that guess this is almost like amplifying that idea especially about the the U, the un and those key goals those sustainable goals and getting children to be aware of them and it's a great resource as well for when those issues are debated in school about okay what can we do for this and there's a whole catalogue in there whether it be coding lessons ar lessons um whether it be um something for early years where it's something for something a bit more advanced there's, there's some real great resources in there and like you said it brings a lot of those key people together who are great again this is almost tying into my own personal journey but there's people in those books who are like, I really love what you're doing with um, AR or a particular area that you know, I want to be, I feel inspired by what you're doing so I can do something myself in the classroom. Absolutely. And I think having as many different opportunities to connect with um, these big ideas, but in the way that's going to best allow students to have their voice. You have so much choice in the books. It's not all drawing activities. It's not all music activities. There's something in there for everyone. And the, the hope that we have with these books is that teachers will be able to introduce lessons to students, but then give some freedom of choice and just say, you know, how could you raise awareness about this? What are you thinking? Oh, I'd quite like to, to code a game that my friends could play. And this would help raise more awareness of x topic or i'd really like to make posters that we could display digitally around the school i'm going to be doing some drawing and it's just demonstrating as well to teachers that you can address these big issues at the level of children but in a way that's going to keep them engaged i guess really simple question but who inspires you lindsay the people that inspire me are the ones that are willing to willing to take risks and are willing to share when they've been successful and when they've failed. Because we get as much from our failures as we do from our successes. And it's that willingness to try, I think, gives me hope for humanity that we will be able to fix the big issues that are facing us because we're willing to learn from our mistakes. Um, and those, those are the ones that uh, I draw a huge amount of inspiration from. If I were to name drop, um, Paul Hamilton in Australia is a massive inspiration uh, for me. He's sort of the, the reason I got into pushing AR a bit more. What he was demonstrating resonated with the way that my brain works. I'm very, very visual. Seeing what Paul was doing uh, was very, very visual. And it gave me the confidence of going, wow, there is a tech out there that benefits the way that I think. Um, if I were to basically 
try and drop someone inside my brain and say, look, this is my idea. I want you to be able to walk around and look at it. That's what AR gives me. It gives me the ability to take these really visual ideas that I have in my head and actually construct them and then give the technology to someone and say, go walk around my brain, look at my idea, and then let's talk and let's follow up. And I want to be that voice for the child in the classroom that thinks that way and goes, I can see it all. I know exactly how the layout's going to be, where things are going to be. I need someone to walk through my idea now and sort of pinpoint where it might need improvement or what changes I could make or tell me what works really well. That's what AR does for me. And Paul has been just a massive inspiration there. Have you, have you met Paul? No, sadly not yet. Although I've been uh, liaising with him for a few years now and we just reach out every now and then on Twitter, but I've not actually got the chance to meet him. I have. Oh, don't just rub it in a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> During COVID, he um, did these, am- so I was based in Asia at the time and he did these amazing um, AR and iPad courses that were run by Apple. And um I got a really wonderful opportunity to work with him for six weeks on a project in the early years. I was the only one that was doing it in the early years. And I did it about documenting learning because I had just done a course with the Harvard Graduate School for Education, um, looking at Reggio Emilia and how to document and visualize learning and thinking. So, I mean, he just blows my mind. But actually what I find is in my role now, I've left it. So you now, for me, when I look at, what you're doing i am absolutely fascinated by developing a library <laughs> of usdz files and i am so going to hook into you to work out how to do that next well i think one of the other things that came from his inspiration was taking the idea of putting students in a virtual space but not just to be there to actually do something and so during the pandemic we developed at my school Uh, myself and one of my amazing colleagues, the idea of AR escape rooms. And we were fighting that Zoom fatigue. There was an obvious need to keep students engaged, but they were struggling with just, oh, I've got to watch a video. I've got to take a quiz. I've got to do this. It was not engaging to them after several months. So we said, let's develop basically a space that matches with the social studies curriculum they're learning about, and let's have them walk around and explore. And it took us about a month to get this uh, prototype done and ready to go out to students. But we built a 3D pyramid and students could walk around the pyramid, looking at the content, answering questions, trying to solve different puzzles. Um, And and we got great engagement from the kids. And so that taught us that, okay, this is not something that just has to be done during the pandemic. Let's do it while we're back in person. So we did it again and made changes to the model to sort of improve upon it. But it was amazing to go outside on our campus and see, you know, 40, 50 kids walking around with their iPads, knowing that they're walking through this space that we've designed and purposefully built for them to explore. And that sort of approach then led to our end of year AR expos. We're taking the traditional research project and rather than printing out tons of posters and resources and making big displays, which is quite wasteful of the the paper, let's build AR rooms and students can customize whatever they put into that virtual space that matches with explaining their, their research. And we've been doing that. We've done it for three years now, even though we're back face to face, because it's a wonderful way for students to express their understanding of ideas. 
I feel like we've had a really rich conversation over quite a few topics here. So we've almost explored those early years of teaching for, for Lindsay and what her journey through education looked like, inspirational people, create for a cause. And I think the last space almost like one to explore a little bit is almost that, that last strand is probably more the more recent one, which is you, you've begun to be a source of inspiration for a lot of teachers and educators. And you've begun to, like I mentioned, you was at BETS delivering um, a lot of material there. And I, I don't know if I'm being honest, every single thing that you've done, but I know that you give a lot of inspirational talks and I just wanted to understand how how you've felt about exploring that area because I guess <laughs> I know you referred to Paul Hamilton as a source of inspiration but essentially that is what he's doing over um, Australia and parts of Asia as well so I mean it's like I say a source of inspiration for people here as well and I just wondered how you've how you found that space in terms of delivering conferences and it was interesting. Someone asked me the other day, um, I was doing a talk and sort of the feedback was, oh, it's great. Don't worry. You know, you're an expert on this. And that was sort of a light bulb moment of I'd never thought of myself as an expert of it. I just know I'm really passionate about it. And I think when you're very passionate about something that you have the evidence to back up of it works. I don't know if it makes you necessarily an expert because experts sort of encompasses this idea that you know everything and you've reached the maximum peak and your brain is completely at capacity and that's not the case I think I'm just a really passionate advocate for the way of using these types of tools that I've developed um, I love that people get inspired I, I hope that I'm inspiring people um, my goal is to basically get more opportunities for students and if that means that teachers are willing to step outside their comfort zone and try something new and be successful at it, it's only going to benefit the students. I don't set out to necessarily change the way that teachers have to teach, but letting them know that there are other ways that they'll be able to reach their students. There's gonna be other ways that students can share their understanding back to them. And we shouldn't just limit ourselves based on what we're comfortable doing as the adults in the room. We need to think about what's going to be best for these kids. And if that's through coding, AR, music, drawing, photography, video, whatever the case may be, I want students to have as many access pathways as possible. And I hope that what I do is demonstrating to people that it is possible. And I'm, I'm not just like a little isolated island and it only works for me. It can work for anyone because I only started doing AR four years ago. I've only got to this point because I was willing to invest the time and try and fail and try again. And that's, you know, you get more from the process than the end product. You see, it's similar to well, that learning experience that we talked about earlier, isn't it? That you've given your vulnerabilities out for everybody in the whole class. And you mean you're just much as, as a learner as what, as what they are. And you go through those similar experiences of actually modeling something and it actually doesn't go very well. Okay, that's okay. Like, I'm gonna learn from it, I'll go away. I'll make sure I'm better at it next time. Correct. And it teaches perseverance. Um, and I think that's probably something that people or teachers with technology struggle with is this idea that if it doesn't work right the first time, I just have to give up because it will never work. And actually, I've done lessons with colleagues where it has failed spectacularly and they haven't been disgruntled about it. They've gone, OK, so we've learned now what doesn't work. Let's try again with the next class. 
and then we'll see you know we'll make the changes and we'll figure out where we went wrong and we'll see what we learned from this one but just because you have a failed lesson doesn't mean you give up on teaching it doesn't mean that okay that's it i had one bad experience i will never do this again it's got to be instilling that perseverance not only for you professionally but to model for your students that if you fail it's okay and you'll get the opportunity to try again what I love about what you do, though, is that you embody um, that place. You create that play space. For me, that early years play space where students and teachers and you yourself, you're just modeling and demonstrating that every day, not just at school, but and how you're working with students, but in your private life as well, going off and playing and using technology to capture the world around you. I absolutely love that. For me, that's my biggest takeaway from you today because I find you incredibly inspiring and I'm now desperate to go to a Cardiff castle. And <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you have to capture what's around you and you have to think that if this is going to benefit my students in some way, I've got to capture it now in this moment. You know, it takes me a little bit of time, but it's worth the investment if it's going to benefit in the classroom later on. Teachers will go off and do professional development during the summer because they want to benefit their students when they come back. They don't want to just rest on their laurels and keep doing the same thing year on year. They want to find new and better ways to reach their learners, to provide new opportunities. I just happen to get really passionate about the technology piece because I want to come back and show my teachers that you never stop learning. There's always going to be something more that you can do. And this is not a job where you just show up and clock in every day. It's not mindless work that you're just doing on a, a re repetition, but that every day is a new opportunity to try something new. Absolutely. Okay. I, feel, I feel we're nearly there. Um, I think it's just one question. I think it'd be a nice one to finish on. And I'll try and, I've got two questions in my head, but I'm going to try and merge into one. So AR is going to be a huge space. We can see that from some of the products that Apple is pushing out at the moment. And I think you know where I'm going with this already. But I'm quite curious to think that during five, ten years time, what, what, what do you think this space perhaps looks like in terms of learning, in terms of AR? I think given what I've experienced so far and the trends that I see happening, I hope that we will have more people who feel confident to create with AR. I think the world is obviously becoming more visual anyway, and I anticipate that we will see children developing more visual ways of connecting and understanding and showcasing. My hope with AR is that we see it as a really integrated tool in the toolbox, not just for consumption, but definitely to empower this next generation to really share what their ideas are and to put you in that experience, much as I said, like walking around my brain. Um, I'd love for that to be the way for teachers to, to understand their students more and not feel like we don't have the opportunities to do this tech because we've got to rush through the curriculum. Um, where it will be in five, 10 years, I have no idea because everything is constantly changing at lightning pace nowadays. Um, I'm curious to see how Vision Pro will factor into this in the future. At the moment, it doesn't seem terribly accessible for most schools, but I, I will always be a more strongly voiced advocate for AR and education than VR. And my reasoning for that is there's so much about VR 
we don't know in terms of the negative aspects that it can have, especially on younger learners. And VR for me is limited in terms of more learners having access to it. Whereas what's happening with AR and the work that's being done on iPads, it is accessible now to anyone who just happens to have an iPad in the classroom and it doesn't require anything extra. So people can make use of it now today if they choose to without having massive investments in additional resources that are going to be needed. For sure. Lindsay, unless Nikki's got anything else, um, that was so enjoyable. Um, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It was such a rich, brilliant conversation. I really appreciate it. And I know Nathan feels the same as well. Another enlightening episode of the Jigsaw 24 EdTech podcast comes to an end. Today we had Lindsay Stuthard, who vividly illustrated the magic of playful learning using augmented reality in the early years and beyond. When innovative technology blends with an early years mindset, children are given a playground of imagination and creativity. So how can AR further nurture this culture of playful learning? And how can we further embrace the fail to learn philosophy and cherish each small step in our own learning journeys? For those who are eager to dive deeper into Lindsay's groundbreaking work with AR, escape rooms and her incredible digital books, Create for a Cause, I'd recommend heading straight over to Twitter or X where you can find Lindsay on at innovate underscore two underscore edu. Thank you, Lindsay, for opening our eyes to the wonders of a young learner's world and to our listeners for joining this rich conversation. You can also connect with Jigsaw24 by following us on our social channels, which you can find links to in the show notes or by visiting jigsaw24.com forward slash education. Please also remember to give this episode a thumbs up and subscribe. Until our next episode, let's celebrate the joy of playful learning. You can also connect with Jigsaw24 by following us on our social channels, which you can find the links to in our show notes or by visiting jigsaw24.com forward slash education. Please also remember to give this episode a thumbs up and subscribe.